Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your love to us. We're thankful, God, for all that you are to us. Lord, you are so awesome and wonderful. We do praise you. We lift you up and exalt you, Lord. Father, we thank you for this rich portion of your word, Ephesians chapter 4. We pray, dear God, that you would impress it upon our hearts. Lord, that you would help us in all of our struggles and trials. Father, that you would continue that perfecting work in us as you make us like your son Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us to have repentant hearts, hearts that are ready to do your will, eager to do good, Lord. Cause us, Lord, to hate evil and to love righteousness and truth. Help us, Lord, to set our minds on things above where you are in heaven, not on things that are on the earth. And we pray, Father, that you will just continue to do that good work in us that you have begun. We thank you for your love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, hello. Okay, so back in our study of Ephesians, and uh, I want to read to bring our context again. I'm going to start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. I'm going to read through Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Amen? Amen. And so here we are again in Ephesians 4, and and, uh, just wanting to overview this text that we just read. You know, here in in, uh, the latter half of the book, we're learning the practice of a Christian. We're learning what our practical life ought to look like. He's getting very specific about our behavior and our thoughts and our words and our actions and the way we live our Christian life. And, uh, you know, the the kind of the little foundation he lays here is in verses um, uh, 22 and 23 and 24 where he says that in reference to your former manner of life that you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 
And so he's got this contrast between the old self and the new self. And he lays that out there. And he says, lay aside the old self and put on the new self. And then he goes through this very practical discussion about the old self and the new self. And he gives us these contrasts. And all the way through these series of verses, that's exactly what he's doing. He's giving us a contrast of the old self so we know exactly what it is that we're to lay aside. And the new self... So we know exactly what it is that we're to put on. And furthermore, if you will, that new self is a description of the likeness of God created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So as he begins to talk about that new self, he's talking about what the likeness of God is, what it looks like, what does godliness look like. And so through this, these practical verses, and actually throughout the end of the book, He's giving us a discussion of what godliness is, what the new self looks like, what the new self thinks, what the new self does, and what the new self says. And he's saying, you Christians must no longer live like the Gentiles. Instead, you must live like a Christian, a beloved child of God. And so he's giving us these practical exhortations. And... Um, and, and, and how uh, specific they really are. It's just a fabulous thing. As we've gone through these verses, we've seen these contrasts. And uh, I wanted to point out a couple of things that, that uh, you know, really these uh, evil behaviors that are described in these passages, if you will, are very selfishly motivated. And if you consider... The motivating factors behind each of these evil behaviors like falsehood and stealing and unwholesome words and bitterness and wrath and anger, these things are all motivated by selfishness. They're all motivated by a self-preserving attitude, a self-preserving, uh, 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 motivating uh, uh, attitude in the heart. And if you will, these other godly virtues like edification and working to share and being kind and tender-hearted and forgiving – these are very selflessly motivated. And they are the motivation which comes from the Spirit of God. And these are the very characteristics that describe the Lord Jesus Christ. He is edifying. He is the truth, the Bible says. Okay? He gives us an example of hard work so that we may have something to share. He gives us uh, uh, words that constantly build up. And his heart is very kind and forgiving and gracious and tender. And he's very pleasing to God. The, the life of Christ builds up. It edifies. The life of self destroys. It tears down. It creates division and strife. You can think of people that you know, the most godly people you know. If you look in their house, in their home, in their family, what do you see? You'll see Christ. You'll see edification. You'll see kindness. You'll see that, that family being built up. You think about some of the most wicked people you know. Look at their life. What do you see? You see a very destructive lifestyle. You, you, see, you see malice and anger and clamor and bitterness and wrath. That is the fruit of self. That is the fruit of sin. That is the fruit of being focused on ourself. Okay? But when we make Christ king, when he makes us beloved children, we begin to show forth those virtues of the one to whom we belong. And if we ascribe worth to Christ, and if we see his virtues as glorious, and we begin to worship and ascribe worth to Jesus because he's loving and kind and gracious and merciful and powerful and wise. If we see those virtues as glorious, then we're going to begin to pursue those and take them on ourselves because those are the things we're going to ascribe worth to. Those are the things we're going to live for. Okay? And so if you will, as Paul's going through this discussion of contrast, he's getting very specific and he says, don't let your life look like this. Instead, lay aside that evil behavior. Lay aside those evil thoughts. Lay aside those evil words. Right? And put on, he says, the new self, which is created like God. And this is what it looks like. It's edifying. 
It builds up. It strengthens. It encourages. It's kind. It's tender-hearted. It's forgiving. It's gracious. Okay? And these, these contrasts really make it clear for us to see exactly what he means when he says, lay aside the old self and put on the new self. Amen? And so we've gotten down through these verses, and, and uh, last week we ended uh, <clears throat> in verse 30 where it said, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And I want you to see, and I mentioned this last week, there's a contrast here also. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And last week I was talking about how the heart of God is grieved by the sin of his people. And, And if you will... He goes on a few other verses here and he says, Put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, but be kind and tender hearted, forgiving one another. And then in, in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he says, And walk in love, he says, be imitators of God, right? And he says, <clears throat> There, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Okay? Here, see this contrast. Verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. (coughs) And uh, chapter 5, verse 2 says that the life of Christ is a fragrant aroma unto God. And so you have this contrast here of grieving God or being pleasing to God in a sense where you understand what a fragrant aroma is, right? It's, it's something that, that, uh, that brings much satisfaction to us and it's, it's something that's very pleasant to us and it's very pleasing, okay? And, and that's the idea of the sacrifice of Christ to God the Father. It was a, it was a very pleasing thing. It was as, as a fragrant aroma in his nostrils. When God saw the sacrifice of Christ, he was extremely pleased. Okay, And so here's this contrast. Pleasing God or grieving God. And he says, these behaviors here, falsehood, stealing, unwholesome words, bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, these things are grieving to the Holy Spirit of God. By whom we have been sealed. The Spirit of God lives in us. Remember chapter 2. We, we're now the dwelling place of God. Right? And right here in chapter 5, uh, verse 1, we are His beloved children. Okay? We can't grieve Him. We don't, we don't grieve God any longer. Now we've been created in true righteousness and holiness. Okay? And so we got to be different. And as Paul describes what these are like, look what he's saying. Look at these contrasts. He's saying, this is grieving the Spirit, and this is a fragrant aroma to God. And so you get this idea that, if you will, that God is watching. And God is in us. And, and as, we, as we sin and as we manifest evil and wickedness in our life, it is a grieving thing to the Spirit of God. And as we are kind and tender-hearted and forgiving, that's a fragrant aroma unto God. It's something that is very pleasing to Him. Okay? You see that contrast there? So then, uh, that was verse 30. And then we move on to verse 31 and 32. And there he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Okay, and here again, he uses these words, put away, right? And back in when he was telling us about the old self, he said, lay aside. And here it is, put away. And so we get the uh, terms we use all the time, the put on and the put off. Put off the old self and put on the new self. And Paul is saying, lay aside that old self. Or here he says, let it be put away from you. Have nothing to do with it. Turn your back on it, right? Put it away. Take it off. Get rid of it, okay? And what is it that we are to get rid of? It is these these, uh, evil dispositions and actions that he describes here. 
Here the contrast is between several evil behaviors and several godly virtuous acts. If you look at verse 31 and 32 together, they are very much kind of a um, contrast put together there. That thing don't write. <laughs> there and here. And, and uh, he's saying, lay these aside and put these on. Okay, in verses 31 and 32. And uh, <clears throat> all of these sins are certainly grieving to the Holy Spirit, who we are commanded not to grieve. Let these be put away from you, church. Kill this sin. Count it dead. Okay? Here's what we are to do. We are to put these away from us. Let them not even be named among us. Let us hate these things. Let us turn our back on these things. Let us put these away from us. These are improper for God's holy people. Okay? And what are they? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And I wanted to kind of try and define some of these for you. And, and feel free to uh, chime in here if you'd like as we define some of these things. But here's what he's telling us to put off. This is the old self. He says, put this away from you. Bitterness. Okay, what does he mean by bitterness? Well, the English word is defined. A grudge or inner feeling of extreme displeasure against someone. Bitterness. Bitterness is an injurious, vindictive, Emotion that is felt in the heart towards someone else. And oh, how bitter it is. <clears throat> There's an apt term in the Old Testament to describe such a thing. It's called wormwood. <laughs> you ever heard that term? <clears throat> That's what bitterness is. Bitterness of soul is like wormwood. It's like the flavor of something that's very bitter. It's repulsive. Bitterness is like a cancer of the soul. It sits inside the soul and it eats away. And you know what? It never gets enough of bitterness. It, it, it can always feast on bitterness. And it's like the fires of hell. It's never consumed. And the apostle says, put it away from you. He says, put away that grudge or inner feeling of extreme displeasure against someone else. Put that away, he says. That's not proper for a child of God. Who is instead to be what? Kind and tender-hearted, forgiving. See the contrast to bitterness there? Yes? Amen. You know, that bitterness is like a cancer. Some of you may struggle with bitterness. It's a very, very difficult thing. It, it haunts you. Bitterness haunts you. And until you grant forgiveness, it's just like dragging around a ball of misery. Many of you may know what I'm talking about. Here he says also wrath. Wrath. Wrath is the passion of anger expressed. An action resulting from extreme anger. Wrath is what happens when you're angry. Okay? So what do you do? Well, you blow your top. You yell. Or you, or you, God forbid, do something worse than yelling. Right? You express your anger. The expression of anger is wrath. Okay? And again, the apostle says, put this away from you. It is improper for a child of God. Okay? And of course, this is in an evil context because we've learned that there is a righteous kind of anger, right? But when we talked about that, we talked about the great importance of having meekness and self control so that if one does express wrath in the midst of righteous anger, they don't sin by their action then, right? So here, this wrath is something which is very common with a selfishly motivated anger. Okay, because this wrath that's expressed is very destructive. Okay, 
And it's something that we are to put away. It is not to be named among us Christians. Okay? We are to be warm, kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, gentle, right? Meek, self-controlled. We are not to have wrath. We are not to have outbursts of emotion which are expressing our anger. Unless, of course, that anger is properly motivated. And again, we've said we've got to be, we've got to be wrong. Careful terms when we're talking about expressing righteous anger. Amen? Anybody want to add here? No? Okay. He says anger. And anger is defined as a vindictive emotion excited by real or imaginary injury. Okay? Anger is an emotion. And he says, put it away from you. Right? What does James tell us? He says, be slow to become angry. Because the anger of man does not bring about what? The righteousness of God. The anger of man, says James, does not bring about the righteousness of God. Amen? The anger of God brings about the righteousness of God. But not the anger of man. Amen? And there gives us a definition for righteous anger. Whatever angers God is a proper motivation for righteous anger. Amen? But here Paul says anger and wrath are to be put away from you, along with clamor. Okay? Clamor. Clamor is one of those words I don't think we use too much in the modern English. But here's what clamor is. Clamor is a public outburst of anger which is very loud and boisterous. Okay? Clamor is what happens at a riot. Okay? Clamor is what happens at a riot. People blow up and they have these outbursts. Okay? That's what clamor is. Paul says... This is improper for a Christian. We are not to be clamorous. We are not to have public outbursts or public outcries of emotion, which are uh, uh, expressions of anger and wrath. This is improper for God's holy people. Clamor is defined as a loud, continuous outcry of displeasure, boisterous speaking and brawling. It is something done in public. Clamor is a public outburst. Okay? Then also he says, put away from you slander. Slander. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word slander. But what I think of is falsehood. To me, a slanderous accusation is one which is untrue. But as I have studied this a little bit more, I have found that it is not necessarily an untrue report. Slander can also be, as I have written here, a malicious report. So in other words, it is information conveyed with the motivation of malice. Okay, And of course, malice is defined as a disposition to harm others, uh, deliberate mischief. <coughs> Do you think okay. we could put under there gossip? Could gossip fall under slander? Absolutely. Yeah. Gossip would be, as a matter of fact, in a, you might even find gossip there in a certain translation. <coughs> you know, you can ask yourself, these words that I'm saying, are they necessary? Are they edifying? Do they build somebody up? <coughs> right? That'll show you gossip in a big hurry. My translation says, evil speaking, I'll be put away from you. Right. Yeah, there's several that say evil speaking. Evil speaking. And and there are several things here that are actually evil speaking. Slander, clamor, uh, unwholesome <coughs> words. Those are all evil speaking. Right? Those all describe those words that are not edifying. Remember that word I told you about in the Greek, sapros, which means rotten, right? That term unwholesome, that's what it means. 
Rotten words. Destructive words. Those are to be put away from us. We are to speak what builds up, what edifies. Think about whenever you blow your top and you express your wrath, think about how destructive your words are. You don't ever blow your top in anger and say nice, kind, warm, fuzzy things, now, do you? You're so Right? No, you don't, do you? It's almost like the fangs come out of the front of your face and the claws grow. And you just have this evil, wicked intent when you're expressing ungodly anger. Amen? Amen. I mean, you take on the characteristic of Satan himself. To kill, to steal, and to destroy. Amen? Lives inside every one of us, doesn't it? Paul says you've got to put it away. You've got to lay it aside. You've got to kill this sin. It cannot live in you any longer. You cannot walk like the Gentiles anymore. Now you're the beloved children of God, and you are to imitate Christ. Amen? Can you see Jesus blowing his top, expressing his angers with fangs and long claws? Somehow that just doesn't seem like Jesus to me. Amen? Right? Instead, he's what? He's kind. He's tenderhearted. He's forgiving. He's gracious. He's calm. I mean, you know, out of all the things that went on with Jesus, we very few times do we ever see an expression of his anger. Right? Now, there's coming a day, I admit, when we're going to see every eye. And he's coming on the clouds with all of his powerful angels. And there's going to be an expression of holy anger. And on that day, men are going to be looking for holes to hide in and caves and rocks to hide them from the face of the Lamb, from the wrath of the Lamb, it says, and from the face of Him who sits on the throne. There's going to be an expression like that. But when God came to the earth and manifested Himself to us, what did we see? We saw this beautiful and wonderful character in the flesh. Amen? And it wasn't wrathful and it wasn't bitter and anger and clamorous and slander and there certainly was no malice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And so when you see that picture of Jesus, friends, that's what we are to be like. That is what the new self looks like. Okay? Amen? Amen? All these sins are destructive to the body of Christ. Rather than building up the body, these tear down and cause divisions and injury. The Christian is to lay aside that old self with all of its evil behavior. We are to put it to death. Amen? Amen. And so Romans 6, 10, 11 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? And here you see these destructive things that we're talking about here? These are the things that the Apostle is telling us to consider ourselves dead to. We are to be dead to these sins. You know, one of the things that I hate about legalism is that we get this focus on outward conformity. And we say, don't taste this, don't taste that, don't touch this, don't touch that, don't handle this, don't handle that. You know, you know, you, you can't wear clothes like that, or you can't wear this, or you can't go to movies, or you can't do this. Or you, got, you got all these things that you can and can't do. Okay? And, and that's not what the Bible is telling us to do. The Bible is telling us to kill sin. To put off sin. Those things which are sinful. And here he gives us a description of what those things are. Okay? Jeff. It almost sounds like the difference between legalism and and, and what you're describing here. What you can and can't do versus what you can and can't be. Okay. Yeah. These would speak of of what's really going on inside the heart, wouldn't it? Who you really are. Right? Whereas legalism, in my, in my mind, is focused on outward conformity rather than on what's really going on inside the heart. Right? Because if the heart is corrupt, 
eventually the actions are going to follow. Amen? If the heart is pure, what is the life going to look like? Right? And again, I, I think there's a lot of good practical instruction that we could give about things that we taste and things that we handle and things that we touch. And the Bible is very clear about those things. But <clears throat> my point is, you know, we can, we can begin to uh, have a religious system that's very focused on outward conformity. And we can forget about these things. And these things could be, you know, as long as we follow all the rules and do the right thing, which our religion calls us to, right? It's not really too important what's going on inside the home or inside the heart. Amen? Not so the Bible. The Bible talks very specifically about the behaviors that we are to put off. Amen? Jerry? I was going to say, you know, the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. All these other things, even if they're done behind closed doors, you know, because you're you're not expressing or you're not picking up a hammer and hitting your neighbor. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you see what I mean? The, the mm-hmm. physical expression. But behind closed doors, all those sins really do damage against your neighbor. Whether you're bitter towards him, Amen. or you express your wrath, Amen. or your slander, and I think slander, yeah, falsehood is a flavor of slander, but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think when you talk about somebody, even though it's true, I think God is grieved over that. And it could, it could have malicious. Your neighbor, yeah. Yeah, it could have malicious intent, and yeah. still be true. Right. Right. <coughs> and and then you would consider: Are those words edifying? You know, and a lot of times gossip is is that exactly gossip are, is true statements, but spoken with malicious intent. You know, it, you know, it's like you know, my brother comes to me and confesses his sins, and he's weeping and crying. And then I go out and tell twenty people, Ah, man, look at that guy. Look, you know, and what I may be saying may be true, right? right. But it's very destructive, and it's maliciously motivated, right? Amen. Put it away from you, says Paul. Carol. Or even if you tell it so they'll pray for them. Yeah, well, we, we have all kinds of nice Christianese terms to cover up our gossip, don't we? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We call it sharing. <laughs> it's true. How evil that is, Hanjo. Yeah. How wicked that is. Think, think how skilled we are in wickedness when we do such a thing. Rose? Amen. Amen. Yeah. And maybe if we did a little praying ourselves a little more often, we wouldn't have to ask so many people to get praying, would we? Because then maybe we'd know when we got in our closet, we had a direct line to God. And that God hears our prayers and answers. Because we live a life of faith and do, do does what's pleasing in His sight. And He's disposed to hear us and answer. Amen. Maybe if we had a a little bit more faith, we wouldn't be spreading around the report, would we? We'd be acting on our knowledge to go and to edify and to love and to serve and to help and let those who are spiritual restore such a one gently. Amen? I look at that list on the self side Mm -hmm. and you see every making for a movie for a reality show. There you go. You know, I mean, really... Yeah, this is a description of the modern American media. Right? The world. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, the popular movie. Here it is, right here. So when your kid asks you, can I go see Anger Management? What do you think it's going to show in it? Or that one, Envy? Or what was that other movie? Something like Envy? Uh-huh. I mean, it just says it. I mean, you don't even have to guess on what it's going to be about. And we've got all kinds of neat, cute ways to, to uh, make a... Big laughing folly out of sin. You want a little bit of discernment on on movies? There you go. Want a little bit of discernment on TV shows? Here you are. What are these things portraying? You know? What are they portraying? I won't go there. (laughs) I've done that enough. Maybe I haven't. I don't know. Maybe... <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh. 
No, no, it's okay. Really, it's okay. I mean, I, well, I could, I have this big soapbox from time to time that I get on. I like it when you're on about your Christians and and uh, and the things that entertain Christians. You know, if, if we're entertained by murder and adultery and clamor, and we're entertained by guys walking down the street with machine guns in each hand blowing people away, if that's entertaining to us, we need to go back to the cross and get saved. Because that is not entertainment. Amen. Murder is not an entertaining thing. It is vile. It is wicked in the sight of God. Amen? Okay, so you got me climbing up on myself. <laughs> okay, but listen to this verse here. This is verse 32. And it says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Amen? Here is the holy behavior of Christ and the Christian. He has a sweet, loving, and courteous disposition to others, being humble with a submissive spirit. He is tender-hearted, being sensitive to the needs and infirmities of others. He is compassionate and forgiving. The Christian is to live and walk forgiving any grievances they have against one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. God's forgiveness is given freely, heartily, and sincerely. Here, then, is a standard for our forgiveness. For a Christian to harbor unforgiveness is a direct offense against the forgiveness which has been offered to him in Christ. Remember the parable of the unmerciful servant. Please turn there. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 and following. Now, I want to tell you something. Unforgiveness. The unwillingness to forgive. is not to be named among Christians. Unforgiveness is very much like bitterness. In fact, it is bitterness. It is a cancer which lives in the soul. Okay? But Jesus Christ has very stern words to those who harbor unforgiveness that I want you to see. Okay, And, of course, he gives us the parable of the unmerciful servant. And this is one place where he makes such statements here in the form of a parable. But let's read this. Starting in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When they had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. 
Everybody. No, no, absolutely. And first and foremost, your brother. Especially your brother. Okay? But here's the thing. Shall we who have been forgiven an unforgivable debt hold another to account? Just consider if we would walk around with this truth in our mind, how it would change our life. How it would change the way that we treat other people. And how easily we harbor offense against others. And how critically we stand in judgment over others. If we would simply consider the great mercy that God has shown us. Amen? Unforgiveness, friends, is not to be named among us. Why? Because we are they who have been forgiven a debt we could never pay. Amen? The other place I wanted you to see was Mark 11.26, where Jesus makes a very similar statement. Verse 25, he says, Wherever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So there you go, Nicole. Right There's where it would say anyone. So that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Look at verse 26. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Sounds to me like a prerequisite for salvation. I don't know how you read that. But if God doesn't forgive your sins, where are you going to wind up? Not saved. Not in heaven. That's why I say these are stern words. This is one of those sins that Jesus says, you better not commit this one. Because what's riding on this is the forgiveness of God for your sins. Amen? You see how stern that is? That's a serious call. That's a serious call. Listen, Paul says, lay it aside from you and be like this. How? Forgiving one another. Forgiving. We are to forgive. Amen? You know, the forgiveness of God is amazing. I want you to see something in this verse. Look at this verse. He says, Be kind to one another and tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Amen? Who would look up a couple of scriptures for me? Karen? Psalm 103, verse 12. Sophia, Isaiah 43, 25. Daryl, Colossians 2, 13. How is it that God has forgiven you in Christ? Consider this. Uh, uh, and I, I've got a little way to describe it here. Okay? The first thing is, He forgave you freely. Secondly, He forgave you fully. And thirdly, He forgave you liberally. Okay? Consider what these might mean. That God has in Christ forgiven us freely. In other words, we didn't earn God's forgiveness. How could we? It was our offenses that, that, that brought uh, the separation between us and God. Therefore, even if we do good from now to the end we die, what are we going to do with those offenses that we had? Right? He bore our sins in His body on the tree. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for our sins. And that's how God can justly forgive us. Amen? But consider how God has forgiven us freely. We don't deserve His forgiveness, yet He forgave us. Consider that the next time you're harboring unforgiveness against your brother. We're not waiting for Him to get good enough for us to forgive Him. Amen? We need to be quick to forgive. Rich? I, uh, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the murderer, the, uh, someone that does something vile against one of your children. Do we forgive them regardless of whether they ask for forgiveness or not? Uh, no, I, I would say that the, the Bible gives, most definitely gives conditions about forgiveness. Yeah. Right? But here's the thing. Did God forgive us before we repented? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had his chosen. 
He did. It was in his heart to forgive. And upon repentance, what happens? The forgiveness of God is applied. You with me? Mm -hmm. So here we're talking about a disposition of the heart. The disposition of the heart is to forgive. Okay? The other thing I would add to this thought is, we are not God. We are not God. And for us to uh, get real technical about how and when we're going to express our forgiveness, I think is dangerous ground. I I think that we need to be uh, very much like that slave when he's prostrated before his master, pleading for forgiveness. At that point, he is not willing to harbor an offense against anybody or anything. I think that is the place to be for a Christian. Of course, I have never had my children murdered. And I'm not standing in the shoes of one who has. Okay? But I think that the disposition and the willingness to forgive that man who would sin against me in such a great measure should live in my heart. So that at the time that God gives me opportunity to offer that forgiveness, it is ready and willing to be given. I read a book or I listened to a sermon on radio and I just, when this guy was explaining or how I read it in my mind, I can't remember which way, but um, they were saying like his wife came up and apologized for something she did and his comment was, you know, I've already forgiven you before you asked. And I just thought that was just so awesome. You just already have the forgiveness in your heart. Amen. And that's where I think us Christians need to be. I think we need to, to live there. Kyle? I was going to say, going back to this list, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the bitterness part comes in a lot of times if you don't forgive. Mm-hmm. And even if someone hasn't asked you and they don't want you, you know, they're not seeking that forgiveness, Amen. you don't want to go as far as the bitterness part. Amen. Amen. There's a downward spiral that begins with unforgiveness and bitterness. That, that downward spiral doesn't have an end. The flesh is never fulfilled. It, it, its end is destruction. And, and this is improper for Christians. We are to be a, a forgiving people. And, and that forgiveness, listen, is not offered to the deserving. It's given freely, just as God in Christ forgave us. Did we somehow deserve the forgiveness of Christ? Did we somehow merit Christ's forgiveness? No, while we were still what? Enemies, sinners of God, right? God forgave us. Right? What is that? Romans 5.8? It's right in there, Romans 5.8 or 10. Right. right? Listen, we were clearly in the wrong. And, and before we were ever righteous or had a righteous disposition, the forgiveness of God was there and given. Amen? Okay. Then also, not only did God forgive us freely, but he forgave us fully. What do we mean by that? We mean that every single one of your sins has been forgiven. Past, present, and future. Gone. Drowned in the deepest part of the sea. Right? Karen, what does your verse of scripture say? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So I want to ask you this question, which I've asked you before. How far is the east from the west? Joe knows. You can't get there from here. You can't get there from here. What does that say about the absolution of your sins? Gone. 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 How many of them? Every single one. Amen? What a glorious truth. God has forgiven us fully. Now here is a standard for how we are to forgive our neighbor. Freely and fully. Somebody else. Uh, Sophia has Isaiah Isaiah, 43. Yeah, 4325. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Amen. You know what God says about sins? When he forgives them, I don't remember them. (laughs) Now you tell me what God can't remember. God's omniscient. 
He knows all the totality of everything there is to know at any one given second in time. Right? Yet, he says in the scripture, I will remember your sins no more. I will forget them. It will be as if they never happened. I can't remember them. What is that guilt you're talking about? I don't remember that offense. That's what the scripture says. You know how many times that's, when I was looking that up in the Bible, uh, there, God is saying, I will remember your sins no more. I mean, it's, it's, it's like 30 or 40 times in the scripture where that reference is made like that. Okay? And it's so opposite from the world because how many times have you heard, I'll forgive but not forget? Right. You know, well, I'll forgive him, but I'm sure not going to forget it. Um, what that means is, I'm really not I'm going really to forgive not you. Really forget <laughs> In other words, I have empty, hollow words. Can't you see? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Rose? Right. Exactly. This is what I'm going to call okay. a striking paradox in the scriptures. And I, I encourage and exhort you to go dig down deep to the bottom of that one. Because I think it's very profound. Did everybody get the point? Go ahead, Jerry. Uh, I was going to say I struggled with that for a long time because um, sometimes you sin so grievously through your life that you don't really believe that God forgives and forgets. And I think that when we hold sins against other people, it's because we haven't accepted the complete forgiveness of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that paradox leads to a form of bondage where you can't know the peace of God and the forgiveness of God because you won't accept his complete forgiveness. Therefore, you're not a complete forgiver of others. And when you can't forgive others, you are miserable. Man, that, that is walking. That is a walking ball of misery. And you can't experience the peace of God Amen. because you're at war with God over your sins mm-hmm. because he's trying to give you something and you won't take it. Amen. That's how it was for me. And, and so what you have to do is you, 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 have, you have to resolve that paradox right up front. Right. And you have to say, okay, here are two truths that stand side by side which seem to be opposing one another. Which, which we're going to do with every paradox, right? So where is the confusion? Well, is it in the mind of God? Is God confused about this truth? No, he's not. Am I? Yes. So where is the shortcoming? It's in my ability to comprehend the forgiveness of God uh, in, in juxtaposition to the other uh, uh, commandment to forgive my brother unless I not be forgiven, right? So what we have to do is, okay... I believe that God forgives my sin and remembers them no more, has removed them as far as the east is from the west, has drowned them in the deepest part of the sea, right? But at the same time, I am strictly warned in the scripture not to harbor unforgiveness, lest my forgiveness be taken away, as it were, as if that could happen, right? And that's what creates the paradox. So what I'm suggesting is, is with any paradox, we take both of them, we accept them, and trust by faith that God will bring us to an understanding whereby they can be resolved in our mind. Sophia? Well, I was just going to say that um, maybe I'm not thinking deeply enough about this, but it doesn't seem like that big of a paradox to me. The way I look at it is if you're harboring unforgiveness and you're unable to forgive then you have to question whether or not you are a believer. Because being a Christian is taking on the character of Christ. And he, of course, is forgiving. Yes, and, we and all and here's the thing short. is, a lot of times when you sin. can't forgive, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian. Right. That means you're... I'm imbe- saying if it's, a, if it's a pattern in your life of unforgiveness, right, but just like with any sin that is a pattern in our life that we... You, these are times when you do self-examination. 
Because, you know, the thing is, is I've always been told that you're going to arrive when you become a Christian, and that's just not the case. Yeah, but, but uh, I think what she's saying is, is, she's not saying if you're unforgiving, you're not a Christian. What she's saying is, if you find it difficult to forgive, you need to examine right. yourself to see if you're a Christian. Because a Christian ought to be able, by the Spirit of God, to overcome that sin of unforgiveness. Right? That should be your desire. And, and, Go ahead. And what I wanted to say is there's a lot to the Christian growth. And Amen. that Amen. it, you know, growing as a Christian, <clears throat> having victory through all those different things, one of them being unforgiveness. Amen. And, you know, 10 years ago, I couldn't forgive very easily. I knew I had to, mm-hmm. but it was like really difficult. Right. Just like my battle against uh, lust and my battle against. Uh, filthy language, you know, it's a slow thing to have victory over those speed bumps. <coughs> but we all we all have difficulty growing and maturing and, right. and warring with our sins and putting them away. Hey, it's a tr- it's a spiritual war going on. Amen. Like I used to tell a friend of mine, we had this kind of discussion. Are you in the war? Yeah. It seems like kicking back. Like seems like some people can can hardly tell. That there's a war going on. Right. Amazing. Asleep, wandering in the land of Nod. Um, okay, wait, I got one more scripture. Who's got Colossians 2.13? Listen, God has fully, he's freely forgiven us. We didn't deserve it. And he's fully forgiven us. How uh, Every single one of our sins is going to be remembered no more. There are as far as the east is from the west. And what does this one say, Daryl? When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. I ask these kinds of questions frequently. How many is all? <coughs> all. Like dead, dead all. Okay. okay. The forgiveness of God, listen, is full. It includes every single sin. Okay, so here is your standard then for forgiving your neighbor. Because you see what he said? He says, forgive how? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you freely and fully. And here's this third one, liberally. Liberally, okay? Think about this. It's it's the same as fully, kind of. But, you know, uh, when you consider uh, Peter, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Right? Good old Peter, man. He's got a forgiving heart, doesn't he? And what does Jesus say? Seventy, up to seventy times seven. What does he mean by that? Anybody? Four hundred and ninety. Four hundred and ninety is just getting started. such a high number, so you just forget about counting. That's exactly what he means, Nicole. This is what Jesus means by 70 times 7. He means infinitely. He's trying to use a huge number to describe how often you ought to forgive your brother. Okay? Now, here's this thing. We're not like God, right? So, you know, our brother comes in, and, you know, we got a sore big toe, and he walks in, and he steps right on it. (laughs) Ouch! You stepped on my toe! Right? So, you know, we go away wounded, and the next day we can, Brother Wum's walking by and steps on our toe again. Ouch! Didn't you see my toe? You did that yesterday! Right? Well, I imagine by the 490th day, we're getting awful tired of forgiving our brother. You You with me? We studied this parable, and, and. Something that I thought was incredible with the amount here was that you got to realize back then they didn't have calculators, they didn't have paper to write and figure out that it was 400 and something. So when Christ says 70 times seven, that's an unfathomable number to these to these guys. Yeah, they counted on their hands and toes. Well, the thing that I I thought was really important for us to see right here is that. When we consider how difficult it is to forgive somebody 490 times for the same offense, consider how many times God has forgiven you since the day he revealed to you 
your sins, how often you have transgressed against him. And you, 490 don't even scratch the surface. Right? I did that by the end of the first week after I got saved. You with me? And I don't mean to make light of sin, except to say that we are very sinful creatures. And even after we've been born again and the nature of God lives in us, what do we keep on continually doing? Right? And, and, and so this, this, here is the thing that we've got to see in this verse of Scripture in Ephesians. We're not just talking about forgiving our neighbor. We are talking about forgiving our neighbor just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Amen? That is a well of forgiveness that never runs dry. Amen? Every time you let that bucket down there, it comes back up full of forgiveness. You with me? So it gives you an idea of what the disposition of your heart ought to look like toward others. It's always forgiving. It's always forgiving. And I, I think if you, if you really struggle with forgiving people, you really need to look deep inside your heart and ask God to do some surgery in there, man. Because you've got a major problem if you can't forgive. You've got a major problem if you can't forgive. It's really critical in our families with our husbands, our wives, and our kids. Amen. There was a thing at the homeschool convention that really convicted me that um, we talked about first-time obedience with our kids and, you know, we let this so-called righteous anger rise up at us when they're not doing it. And I'm not saying we shouldn't discipline our kids. But um, just uh, to be merciful and to be forgiving mm-hmm. and to recognize that God is doing a work in them too, you know. We've not all arrived, like Jerry was saying. And, um, you know, just, uh, gosh, if we're not forgiving our kids for all the offenses that they do every day and that we do probably right back to them, then you're going to end up in this bitterness pool, you know. Amen. It's destructive. Amen. And thereby many will be defiled. Yeah. Amen. Just like the first comment about uh, her saying that we expect obedience the first time. How often are we obedient the first time? Amen. God's commandments. Too often we have to be told multiple times to Amen. And to me, that speaks to us of our ready willingness to forgive. Not that we shouldn't expect first-time obedience. We should, just like God does. But when, when we fall short, God is also ready to forgive. Yeah. Amen. Carol? A large part of forgiving is thinking on the things of God, of choosing to put, renew our mind with the things. The more we dwell on something that's wrong, the mm-hmm. more it's builds up because if we put our minds on the thing of the Lord and renew our minds as he calls us to Amen. Uh, we we really work on that forgiveness. Amen. Amen. And I think when we ask the Lord to forgive us, it always crosses my mind whether or not I need to forgive somebody myself. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. And I think you'll put tests in your lives to truly see if you have forgiveness. Amen. Here, here is a virtue. Here, here is a virtue and an apt description of holiness. One little facet of it. Forgiveness. You know, we think about holiness. Hey, you girls are cutting up. You know, we think about holiness, you know, and it's like, take off your shoes. The fear of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God. And we holiness, we, we have these high terms, all right? Think of this. Forgiveness is a facet and an attribute of holiness. It's otherly. It's not like men. It's like God. Freely and fully willing to pardon. Amen? Oh, that this heart would be in us. Amen? 
Hey, Sean, what's that verse that finishes up, then you'll prove to be sons of God? Uh, love others. Uh, uh, don't, don't. I'm sorry. If you love others who only love you, right. that section in Matthew 5. Yeah. we got to pray. It's late. <laughs> God, our Father, we thank you for your love. Lord, I thank you for these holy words of exhortation. I pray that you would impress them upon our hearts and that, God, you would make us to be beloved children, kind and tender-hearted and forgiving, Lord, even as you have forgiven us. Impress that upon our hearts, God. May we come to know and understand, dear Lord, what this forgiving spirit is that you have. And may we also possess it. May we indeed be imitators of you. We thank you for your love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.